Welcome to Prose and Context, a podcast about life-giving teaching by the English Department at Lexington Christian Academy. Hi, I'm Karen Elliott. Thank you for joining me. And today I would like to talk about why I teach Beowulf, uh, the not-so-ancient postmodern man. So I teach a first semester British literature survey course to all the seniors. And whether they're in AP or honors, we always begin with the famous anonymous Beowulf. After all, it is the oldest complete manuscript we have in the English language. But that's not why we read it or why I choose to teach it. This is a book where all of my students, their parents and grandparents can identify. Unfasten the sword and remove all the chainmail you've got the most modern of men, particularly if you claim to believe in God, or the very least, something larger than yourself. It is the first third of the story my seniors like the best because they can identify so much. Beowulf is a smart 18-year-old who has just finished his senior year in the Kingdom of the Geats, and he is looking for some post-grad work or an internship. He is young and has a questionable reputation, He wants to prove everybody wrong, especially his overprotective parents, so he irresponsibly goes overseas to kill a terrorist, a monster named Grendel, and then kills the terrorist's mother, who makes tiger moms look like Elmo. He actually succeeds, and then returns home to say, I told you so. After that, he rules for many years and gains much-deserved wealth and material blessings according to his culture and era, However, that's where the rest of the story actually begins, especially if you are older and you've gotten past some of those crucial checkpoints of what defines success, at least according to your terms or the world's, and perhaps you've even surpassed them. This is when my students get judgmental, and perhaps rightfully so. They can't identify with the middle-aged Beowulf, and God willing, I hope they never do. What I like about this text is that it shows an honest journey of a Christian who must live in the world, but not of it, and yet slowly and unintentionally becomes of it. As a result, God brings death and destruction upon Beowulf's renowned career, success, and kingdom. What is amazing is that Beowulf proclaims that none of this is God's fault, but it's all his. In fact, the author claims that this realization threw the hero in deep anguish and darkened his mood, The man thought he must have thwarted ancient ordinance of the eternal Lord, broken his commandment. If only we had such righteous, correct instincts about ourselves and our Instagram postings. Inevitably, this causes some reflection of what kind of man Beowulf was like when he was young when the story begins, and it raises questions as to how he changed. The author, most likely a scop or a monk, However, does not share this latter information. The only thing we know is that Beowulf reigned for many years and that upon his death, they, his loyal kinsmen, said that of all the kings upon the earth, he was the man most gracious and fair-minded, kindest to his people, and keenest to win fame. These are the very last lines of the entire text, and yet, due to Beowulf's hubris, his kingdom, despite his fatal final battle and securing victory over the dragon is left to be taken by conquerors. His empire falls due to sin left unchecked 
everybody pays. Beowulf's sin, metaphorically embodied in the dragon, put destroys his entire kingdom. However, we aren't allowed to hate him for it. The author actually wants us to extol his heroic nature and give thanks for his greatness, and he goes on to say even cherish his memory. So, as some of my students might say, you know, what gives? But that's exactly it. It was that too many blessings were given to Beowulf for his apparently great attributes. After he killed Grendel, he was given an abundance of material blessings, which King Hrothgar warns him to take caution. This is the man who raised his status and income tax bracket. King Hrothgar, whose life and kingdom is saved initially by the young Beowulf, warns him after defeating the son of Cain and his mother that he must, quote, beware that trap. Hrothgar's life in the past 12 years of terror and what led Beowulf there. He says, choose, dear Beowulf, the better part, eternal rewards. Do not give way to pride. After that, Hrothgar knows from personal experience, and this is a great example of how we nod and listen to our elders, but we don't heed them. For some reason, our youthful and sometimes helpful in Beowulf's case, arrogance is a veneer from not only good sense, but from a longer, perhaps contented life. The author of the text begins the story with King Rothgar and how he too was a good king. However, the difference between him and his grandfathers is that he didn't have to work hard for the glittery and privileged lifestyle in which he was born. He didn't fight for or earn it as his predecessors did. He inherited it. This analogy, quite frankly, hits home for myself and many of my students who have older parents or they're the children of recent immigrants. Sadly, the World War II veterans are a dying race and much-needed stock of men and women who fought for and quite literally earned for us, something we shamelessly take for granted every day. And as a result, we thank them by proclaiming dissatisfaction with just about everything we do not, or worse, do have. Analogously, much like the Shieldings and King Hrothgar, we are of the long times and troubles they'd come through. But even though we are fascinated by their efforts to keep our freedom, as the PBS and Marvel's Captain America movie ratings clearly show, we ironically ensure our never-ending entitlement. Naturally, this inheritance of freedom transposed itself into materialism since we are the post-industry technological culture. Most of what we, as middle to upper class Americans have is really not necessary. It's no wonder that hunger is getting worse when most of the Western world in Dubai consumes all the food while well-intended tithing gets stuffed back into our pockets in the name of an unstable economy. Like Rothgar, the fortunes of war favored him. Friends and kinsmen flocked to his ranks, so his mind turned to hall building. Sadly, even my young students can identify with this. We've got to have more. We forget the relevance of the past and what it cost, and our minds turn to career building, getting into that particular college or university, knowing the right people, wearing the right hoodie with the right label, and all the while a demon is waiting to hit us right in the materialistic, covetous gut. At first, like Beowulf, and much like my students and myself many a time, we convince ourselves that our own pursuits will make a difference in this world. However, we, like Beowulf, don't fully examine our conscience. So we fail, and not when we're older. 
It begins with our intentions to succeed in the name of God in the first place. Like Rothgar and despite the post 9-11 wars, for generations, my students and myself can identify with Rothgar and his reign. There was peace for generations of shieldings who lived off of the fruits of their parents and grandparents. Consequently, Rothgar's mind turned to hall building. He handed down orders for men to work on a great mead hall meant to be a wonder of the world forever. And when it was finished, the author claims that Rothgar sat on his throne and whose utterance was law. What is interesting here is that Rothgar forgot how he acquired the ability to misuse corporate funds in the first place, particularly if you claim to believe in God, which Rothgar did, and acknowledge his blessings. Consequently, Rothgar accidentally forgets God, whose utterance is really the law, even though Rothgar's church pew is apparently paid for. In fact, too soon after Rothgar's empire has reached a summit with its gables wise and high, it awaited a barbarous burning. That doom abided, but in time it would come. It is evident here that God has had enough, according to the narrator. It's not necessarily Rothgar's skyscrapers. For an Anglo-Saxon culture, that's what they would be. It's not those things that annoy God. It's the blatant violation of the Ten Commandment. Do not covet. After Rothgar sets the example of luxurious living, the author says that the killer instinct unleashed among in-laws, the bloodlust was rampant. Since Rothgar is the king, the moral leader and CEO of Shielding Enterprises, he sets the bar for how his subjects or citizens should live and what they should desire to have or be in their lifetimes. As a result, the author claims that times were pleasant materially and economically for the people there until a fiend out of hell from Cain's clan was allowed to destroy and remove what was causing them to sin. Like most of us, Rothgar doesn't learn fast. We're stupid when it comes to God's expectations, unless, of course, we're looking at what God expects in others. In the story, Grendel continually attacks the kingdom for 12 years, and instead of turning to God, Rothgar consults powerful counselors, the highest in the land, and even worse, Sometimes at pagan shrines, he vowed offerings to idols. This is all too reminiscent of tuning into Dr. Oz, YouTube, or the Today Show, any numerous self-help periodicals, that blog or podcast someone told us to check out, or that youth conference that's coming next month, or what's-his-name as the inspirational speaker. Even as Christians, like Rothgar and his people, we fail to turn to God himself. We sidestep. Instead of turning it to God's word and confessing our prayer to our prayer partner, if we have one, we rationalize in the name of reason and philosophically convince ourselves that our theology is intact. It's just the devil who's trying to steal our joy or blessings. Well, the author of Beowulf would say that is exactly true, and yet not from our perspective. That seems to be the postmodern human condition, even amongst the intellectual Christian, we are always so in tune with other perspectives in the name of God, but we fail to consider or consult God's perspective solely. We don't want to know it. In fact, as the author claims, deep in our hearts, Rothgar and his people remembered hell, and yet the almighty judge of good deeds and bad, the Lord God, head of the heavens and high king of the world, was unknown to them. Oh, cursed is he, the narrator says, 
who in times of trouble has to thrust his soul in the fire's embrace for fitting help. However, even then, God shows his generosity by taking Beowulf's weakness and using it for the good of others. Despite what Hrothgar and his kingdom deserve, the author of Beowulf shows us the character of God. He is gracious, even though he does find it necessary to punish us for our own good, according to the narrator, so that we may share in his holiness. What is wonderful about this harsh revelation is that, like my students, we all need to be reminded of our weaknesses and that God is serious when he states through St. Paul that, in my weakness, I am stronger, and therefore can do more for the heavenly kingdom. In a post-Darwinian age where weakness is a sign that you haven't evolved, as a Christian, I, am, I can confidently tell my students and remind myself that our strengths, perhaps in the end, are not what God is going to use for our lives or for his ultimate plan. After all, if Christ could make the blind see and then paradoxically hang mercilessly on a cross by choice, then we should be able to get this. And this is exactly what happened to Beowulf, who, with a close reading of the text, is not necessarily the next Marvel comic superhero. In fact, albeit he is described as the mightiest man on earth and claims that nobody tried to keep him from going to fight Grendel in the first place, this is somewhat contradicted by his great uncle upon his return home, who admonishes him the moment he steps off the boat. The king raises a series of questions, even though he's glad his nephew and cousin is home safely, and one of which that he has dreaded the outcome of his expedition, and he pleaded with Beowulf long and hard not to go in the first place. After all, Beowulf is in line for succession to the throne, which he does inevitably attain. It was actually irresponsible for him to undertake the journey. Regarding sea travel back in the day, it's no wonder they survived that alone. Yet it's Beowulf's pride that drives him to, quote, the privilege of purifying Hrothgar's kingdom from the demons of their materialism. This is paradoxically juxtaposed with Beowulf's uncompromising faith in God, embodied in his youthful pride and arrogance, which actually helps him defeat Grendel in symbolically hand-to-hand combat without sword or shield, which for the Anglo-Saxon was suicide. By renouncing proper war gear, Beowulf proclaims his ultimate trust in God and his renunciation of worldliness and materialism to help him win. In fact, Beowulf's faith and trust are so strong that he proclaims more than once to King Rothgar that whichever one death fells must deem it a just judgment by God. What is sad, however, is that after he does defeat Grendel, that's only the first phase of the demon layoffs. Now, Beowulf's faith and trust is tested again, but now by Grendel's mother, who is even nastier and more dangerous than her son, the symbol of the origins and birth of materialism. He does win, but this time it's difficult. It's not because Grendel's mother hasn't been working out. It's because Beowulf, due to the success of his first victory and all the gifts bestowed upon him for it, he now relies just a little bit on his own strength instead of implicitly trusting in God. This time, the author claims that Beowulf got ready, donned in his war gear, indifferent to death. As he faces one of Cain's descendants, 
the personification of Cain's sin, which was to seek a blessing, ironically from God himself, through worldliness and viciously holding on to those material blessings to the point of killing his own kin. Beowulf, in fact, like Hrothgar, does this indirectly and unintentionally, and he is completely mystified at God's apparent lack of help in his second battle, coming only hours after fighting Grendel. It is illogical, even for a mythical story, that Beowulf should struggle so much considering that he literally killed Grendel with his bare hands. This time, soon after he attains gifts of gratitude and status from Hrothgar and his queen, while he fights, the narrator claim, claims that the swamp thing from hell that he frightfully observes and that the shining blade refused to bite as he attempted to behead the she-monster. The narrator says that it spared her and failed Beowulf in his time of need. It's like as if this slow motion flashback, Beowulf recalls that his sword had gone through many hand-to-hand -hand fights had hewed armor and helmets of the doomed, but here at last the fabulous powers of that heirloom failed. Here, the very source of which he utterly and publicly refused to use when he fought Grendel is the very thing on which he now depends. Beowulf failed to remember that, as the narrator said, God's will prevails over his life, and this isn't years after his renowned previous victory either. This is literally moments, not even months, after his public proclamation to absolve Hrothgar's kingdom and bring them back to their rightful heavenly kingdom and his newfound esteem in the eyes of all the people he saved. Despite this regression, however, the author attests that God is indeed gracious, especially when we don't deserve it. The, narr the narrator claims that holy God decided the victory and redressed the balance so that Beowulf could win in spite of himself. Consequently, the author challenges the reader to reflect on our own weaknesses. In Beowulf's case, it was his well-fed, and some could argue well-deserved ego, that put him in the ancient Anglo-Saxon books as the emblematic celebrity. However, when does our weakness stop being a strength for the kingdom of God? When does it really become a weakness and a big problem for us? This is evidenced at the story's end when Beowulf is in his mid-70s and his prosperous kingdom has apparently been monster-free for a very long time. This is enough time for a generation to forget, like current baby boomers or their millennial grandchildren who romantically remember those who fought for their dot-com hides. Similarly, and reminiscent of Hrothgar, Beowulf's kingdom has been thriving for generations. In the known world, it's the place where everyone wants to immigrate, emulate, or overtake. Like the Shieldings and the Geats, we middle-upper-class Westerners enjoy our prosperity. We honestly believe that it's always been this way, that it's going to last, until the narrator claims one begins to dominate the dark. Because the dragon is guarding a horde, or incredibly impressive treasure, it's not difficult to decipher that the original storyteller was giving us a denotation. The dragon is the significant marker of the age-old problem of wanting too much stuff and then not sharing accordingly. And the worst part is yet to come. Beowulf is certain that God is not going to allow victory anymore. 
Like the dragon, God has seemingly been benevolently absent. However, he's just been barely patient. Beowulf, as an older man, now knows that he was destined to face the end of his days in this mortal world and that he won't be allowed to win. And yet, this acceptance isn't as though he is submitting to God's will either. It's just the opposite. Yes, Beowulf still believes in an almighty God who is the author and perfecter of his own life and fate, but it's his weakness that he hasn't apparently pruned or honed in a while that causes his kingdoms and his own downfall. The author explains that the Prince of the Rings was too proud to line up with a large army against the Sky Plague. He had scant regard for the dragon as a threat, no dread of all of its courage or strength. It is apparent here that Beowulf is trying too hard to make a sequel or a final episode of a trilogy in his own life. He recalls all the victories he had in the past during his youth. However, he's gotten older. Now, according to human terms, this is when he really needs God's strength, but he refuses to ask for it. He literally goes out alone and then, as a result, takes his kingdom with him. He must wrestle with the dragon, his own demons, as we all do, but when we, like Beowulf, make these matters personal, we fail to rely on God because we keep him out of it. When we choose to do something on our own, well, we are on our own. Consequently, the author claims that Beowulf was foiled of a glorious victory. The glittering sword, infallible before that day, failed when he unsheathed it as it never should have. This final comment deserves attention as it connotes that perhaps had Beowulf even thought of God before going to battle, the outcome might have been different, at least for his kinsmen and kingdom. What's so great about this story is that at first, my students are intimidated by it. I mean, after all, anything that's deemed, quote, ancient before the iPhone is always boring, and yet they quickly rise to my expectations and then exceed them. They get Beowulf because they are living his story daily. In fact, this text is all too timely. Just go to the mall right before Christmas. We, especially Christians, are so entrenched in the blessings of our life that we fail to recognize where we've taken them. And frighteningly, we fail to recognize the demonic pull and are enticed by what worldly rewards follow. And all the while, we're mostly filled with gratitude for all that God has given us. We know that we live a charmed life, but we are not careful how we live that life. Like Beowulf and Rothgar, we always seem to reflect on all of this when it's too late. And as the narrator says, hence, understanding is always best in a prudent mind. Whoever remains for long here in this earthly life will enjoy and endure more blessings than enough. St. Paul once proclaimed that we should, quote, put on the armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything you can to stand. Consequently, if my students and I want to survive in an era in which God has asked us to live, then we must learn to reflect and discern a whole lot more. Beowulf teaches us that wearing the armor of God in this tempting, materialistic, and distracting 21st century 
technocratic world actually means wearing no earthly armor at all and trusting in God under every circumstance. Thank you so much for joining me today. A transcript with a bibliography is available for you, and I look forward to spending more time with you as we continue to explore what it means to find our faith in these great works of ancient literature. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Prose and Context, the podcast for life-giving teaching by the English Department at Lexington Christian Academy. Please subscribe to our podcast and come back again next week.